Good morning, and welcome to the first Sunday in Advent. I know it's the first Sunday in Advent. I'm wearing my purple shirt. Uh, our, our series is, is called And Moved Into the Neighborhood. We get that from, first, or from John 1, 14, John's words, that in the NIV say this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, King James Version says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Phillips Version says the word of God became a human being and lived among us. The Living Bible says and Christ became a human being and lived here on earth among us. But my favorite is from the Message Version. In fact, you're going to see the Message Version if you, try, if you travel southbound I-75 because right on on Bristol Road and I-75, heading south, will be a billboard starting tomorrow that says, and the word became flesh, dot, 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 and there'll be a nativity scene, star uh, of Bethlehem, nativity scene, and then they'll have like our uh, uh, web address, centralnazarene.com, and hashtag Inflint at the bottom. Then you drive a little farther down 75 will be the rest of John uh, 1.14 from the message version that says the theme for our series and moved into the neighborhood. And on that sign, there'll be a Flint Vehicle City sign and a Capitol Theater sign underneath it. The, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. That shouldn't surprise us, really. Uh, we've been praying around here for, for years now that God's will would be done and his kingdom would come to where? To here, on earth, in Flint, as it is in heaven. That's what that verse is proclaiming. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so this series is going to be looking at who exactly is moving into the neighborhood. If you get a new neighbor, if you notice that your neighbor has moved out and a new neighbor is pulling in, you kind of, you peek to see, you check them out, right? You hide behind your curtains and peek through the windows. Just who is moving in next door? You know, do they have kids, my kids' ages? Do they look like they're nice people? Can you judge a book by its cover? Do they look nice? Wow, they got a big TV. Oh, look at that sofa. I wouldn't have that in, in the garage. You've, done, you've checked them out. Maybe, hopefully, 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 when the new neighbor comes, you, 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 you make a batch of cookies and you take it next door. Well, if Jesus is moving into our neighborhood. We don't have to bake a batch of cookies. Save that for Santa. If Jesus is moving into your neighborhood, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we deal with that reality? Well, this Advent season, we're going to figure it out. Matthew begins his gospel, his story of Jesus this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So right from the get-go, according to Matthew, it's the Messiah who's moving into the neighborhood. Well, what does that mean? What's the Messiah? Messiah means anointed one. The one moving into the neighborhood is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, they would anoint, uh, we're told in Exodus chapter 32, that, or 30 rather, that, that they were to anoint the, the articles that were going into the tabernacle. All those holy articles that were going to be in the tabernacle, we talked about some of that in our Moses series, they were to anoint them. There's nothing special in the oil. It simply meant that those things were, had God's blessings, God's acceptance, God's presence was at work in those holy articles. In the Old Testament, when a king became a king, a prophet or priest would, would come along and anoint that king. So when Saul became king, Samuel went and anointed Saul. 
You remember, Saul started building monuments to himself instead of altars to God, and God was not happy with that and removed the blessing. And, and God sent Samuel then to Jesse's house to anoint one of Jesse's sons. You remember that story? All of Jesse's you know, big strapping sons came along. None of them were, were God's choice. No, it was the kid brother out tending sheep. And when David came, David was anointed to be the next king. And that's when that very familiar passage in 1 Samuel 16 that says the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Apparently, God doesn't judge a book by its cover. And so David, David, David was, was God's choice. See, the point was God chooses priests and prophets, anoint, but God chooses, he sets them apart as king. Incidentally, this still happens. When queen, in some countries, when Queen Elizabeth was, was crowned queen, Way back on June 2nd, 1953, she's been queen for a long time. When she was, was, was uh, crowned queen of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury anointed her. In fact, it was so sacred of a, of a moment that he would not allow that portion of the coronation to be recorded. But he anointed her to be queen of England. So we're used to, to, to some of that taking place. And then in the New Testament... Uh, we're told, told that if anyone is sick, let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them in the name of the Lord. And we do that every Sunday. We have, have pastors down here. Don Phillips was down here this morning. And, and a lot of times I'll go to, when I, when I used to be able to go to hospitals, I'd sometimes take this little vial of oil and, and I'd, I'd make the sign of the cross on their head, pray over them, anoint them. Again, it's not saying there's anything magical in this oil. It's not a magic in the oil. It represents the presence of God. It represents the power of God that can even heal. So we're used to, to some anointings. It reminds us that, that God is in charge. Well, what does it mean then? We're talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, moving into the neighborhood. What does, what does, how does that imply to us? Like the instruments in the tabernacle, he is set apart. Like the king, he is the chosen one. Like when people are sick and anointed, God's power rests upon him. That's who's moving into the neighborhood. All right, let's step back for a minute. It was God's desire that the nation of Israel would never have a king. It was God's desire that he would be their king. He, he, his plan was for a theocracy, God in charge. We live in a democracy, people in charge. Well, Israel looked at all the nations around them and the people of Israel, and they wanted a king. They wanted a monarchy. And that was not a good idea. In fact, God had warned them that that would not be a good idea way, way back before they even entered into the promised land in Deuteronomy 17. He told Moses, he said, when you get there, your people are going to want to have a king like everybody else. And he warned them. Deuteronomy 17, he says, but when that happens, a, a king is is going to want, uh, well, he's going to want chariots and horses. And a king's going to want to turn back to Egypt. And a king's going to want money and gold. And a king's going to want many, many wives. A king's going to be nothing but trouble. Well, 400 years later, after they entered into the promised land, if you know your Bible history, you know that by the end of Solomon's life, remember he had, what, 700 wives. By the end of Solomon's life, he had all these things that God said not to have. He was doing all the things that God said not to do. And, and that led to a string of kings that followed in Solomon's footsteps that did the same thing and over and over and over again. These kings were disappointing to say the least. 
both in the northern kingdom Jude, or, or the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Remember, the nation of Israel split, had a civil war following Solomon. Both of them had kings that were totally went against God's will and God's way. So by the end, the northern kingdom was, was defeated by the Assyrians. A, I always remember A for Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, was destroyed by B, the Babylonians. They carted the best off back to, to, to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. And finally, C, Cyrus the Persian, defeated the Babylonians and allowed people to go back. But year after year, they were waiting, wanting this king. You see, way back in when, when, when David was king, Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 7 went to David and gave him this promise. It's called the Davidic, uh, the Davidic covenant. And it said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Two forevers in one sentence. And the people of Israel, they hung on to that promise through bad king after bad king and, and, and even carted off into captivity. And, and even after they came back and their city was in ruins, they held on to that promise. They held on to the promise that one day, one day, one day, the, the king that would sit on David's throne forever would come. And the prophets would come and they would foretell of that day, much like uh, uh, the prophet's familiar words that you remember from the prophet Isaiah. He wrote these words, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. Then listen to this. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah wrote those words. And so for 700 more years, they were waiting, waiting, waiting for this one, this chosen one, the wonderful counselor, the, ma- the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the Messiah. Now by the time we get to the first, first century, King Herod is in charge, right? Herod the Great. He was not just. He was not righteous. He was, he was nothing like what, what Isaiah had, had prophesied about. He, honestly, he wasn't, even a, he wasn't even a true king in the truest sense of the word. He was a puppet, a vassal of Rome. As long as he kept uh, Rome happy, then he could be king. But if he got sideways with Rome, he would be no longer king. And so he wasn't, he wasn't at all what Isaiah was prophesying about. But then an angel... An angel showed up on Mary's doorstep. He said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, who will be great, the, and called the Son of the Most High. And then listen to this. Again, spoken a thousand years earlier to David. People holding on to the promise. The angel said, the Lord God will give him your, the, the throne of, your father, of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end the one promised by Nathan and prophesied by Isaiah and, and proclaimed by the angel to Mary. This one is coming, Matthew's words. This is the story of the birth of Jesus the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the King. Really, for all practical purposes, uh, the King is coming. Now, we in America, we're not used to kings, really. We have presidents, especially this year. We're used to presidential elections. I googled how much money was spent on this year's presidential election. You know how much it was? $14 billion. $8 billion on TV ads alone. Twice as much as what was spent on the last election. 
When President-elect Biden takes office in January, less than one month after we celebrate Christmas, there'll be all sorts of hoopla. There always is on inauguration days. There'll be galas and balls and events, inauguration events, and, and greetings will come in from all over the world because the president, as you know, is the, really the leader of the free world and he is the commander-in-chief of the, of the greatest uh, military in the world. So all these things will be taking place. It'll be a, a grand, grand hoopla event. It always is. Contrast that with the inauguration of our king, if you will. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a stable, in a feeding trough was his first cradle. J.B. Phillips, he wrote a wonderful story about, about the, the incarnation, and this is what he wrote. A senior angel is showing a very young angel around the splendors of the universe. And they view whirling galaxies and blazing suns. They flit across distances of space until at last they enter into one particular galaxy of 500 billion stars. As the two of them draw near the star, which we call our sun, and its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small, rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with all the size and the glory of what he had just seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the the senior angel pointing his finger. Well, it looks very small, rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? He listened in stunned belief as the senior angel told him that that planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean to tell me that our great and glorious prince went down to this fifth-rate little ball? Why would he do such a thing? The little angel's face wrinkled with disgust. Do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of these creepy, crawly creatures on that floating ball? I do. And I don't think he would like you calling them creepy, crawly creatures in that tone of voice. For as strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. And he went down to visit them and to lift them up to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was beyond his comprehension. And as strange and as unbelievable as it may seem, beyond our comprehension, the great king of heaven, Jesus the king, showed up on this obscure, dirty little planet in a place called Bethlehem grew up in a backwards town called Nazareth, so held in such disdain that one of his would-be followers, a guy by the name of Nathaniel, when he heard that Jesus came from Nazareth, said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the implication is Nazareth was for nobodies. Which incidentally, that's how we got our name, you know. The Church of the Nazarene was our, our forefathers. We were established to be the church, not to be seen, but the church that sees, that sees the people that the rest of society overlooks. That's who we as a people are. We are the church that sees, the church that goes to the nobodies and cares for the nobodies. That's historically what it means to be a Nazarene. So Jesus, 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 growing up in this backwoods town, no formal training, he was a carpenter. He began around age 30, campaigning to be the king, traveling to various cities, gathered a small campaign staff, we would call them disciples, not exactly Phi Beta Kappa's fishermen mostly, 
The one person that probably should have been in charge of the treasury, the former tax collector, was not put in charge of the treasury. In fact, spoiler alert, the one who was in charge of of the treasury, a guy by the name of Judas, ended up selling them all out for 30 pieces of silver. The guy that Jesus was supposed to say that the rest of the organization was going to be built upon him was a guy named Peter. He also denied Jesus three times. In other words, the organization was a mess. And on the campaign trail, the stump speeches were mostly about the kingdom of God. He told how, how we were to love God and love people, that we were to even love our enemies. He said the ones that were blessed were not the rich and the powerful, not the high and the mighty. No, he said the blessed. Well, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that, that are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And then get this, he had the audacity to say this, blessed are, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you, people insult you, persecute you, say all falsely kinds of things evil against you because of me. That doesn't sound like much of a blessing. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He told people that they were to care for the hungry, the sick, the thirsty, the lonely, the imprisoned, the stranger. He proclaimed this good news, traveling about that little region, healing all who came, feeding thousands, raising at least three from the dead. All those things would look pretty good on a campaign poster. Unfortunately, they didn't have campaign posters. And for some reason, he frequently told people not even to tell anybody the good that he had done for them. That kind of hurts the word of mouth uh, transmission of, uh, of, of facts. Saying, wait a minute, Pastor. This wasn't a campaign trail. Jesus, there was no election. Jesus wasn't running for president. You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. But please know the disciples thought it was a campaign trail. And they thought the end result was going to be Jesus sitting on a throne when the Romans back in Rome and them sitting in the best seats in the, in the cabinet. Remember brothers Zebedee, James, and John. They said, Jesus, we want to sit on your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. They were expecting that to happen at any moment. But honestly, besides having a questionable campaign staff and a bad organizational structure, he didn't really run a great campaign, to be honest with you. He never mentioned lowering taxes. And in fact, he said, when, when asked about taxes, he said, give them to Caesar what's Caesar's. And he never said anything about defeating the Romans or increasing jobs or, or anything like that. He talked about how his, the kingdoms of his, his kingdom or the citizens of his kingdom would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love their neighbor as themselves. He used Samaritans, Samaritans in his stories, not as the bad guys, but as the good guys. The ethics of his kingdom was based on a simple notion. Treat people as you want to be treated. Demonstrate selfless love. Come on, let's get real for a second here. Can a kingdom, can such a kingdom exist right here on earth? It's a dog-eat-dog world. Go out for number one. Do whatever it takes. He said his kingdom was going to be far different. The hungry are fed, the thirsty are given drink, the sick are tended to, the pris- those in prison are visited, the, the stranger is welcomed. He said, heard, stop me if you've heard this before, that we are to pray, Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth right here as it is in heaven everything he taught during this three year campaign was that the citizens living in his kingdom the citizens of his kingdom are here right now 
He told his followers on one occasion, the kingdom of God is among you. The King James Version says, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is right here, right now. Now, this seems almost too obvious to mention, but, but let me say it. If there's going to be a kingdom, there must be a king. Messiah, remember? That's what we're talking about this morning. The Messiah moved into the neighborhood. For all practical purposes, Messiah means king. Jesus is the king. And I've already told you, typically, a king is anointed, right? By the prophet or the priest, in, in Queen Elizabeth's case, by the Archbishop of, of Canterbury. Who anointed Jesus? Strangely enough, it was three women. In Luke 7, it was a woman. We're, called, we're told she was a sinner, probably a prostitute, who went into the house of, of, of Simon the, the Pharisee, anointed not Jesus' head but his feet. Simon the Pharisee saw her do that and said if he was really a prophet or a king, he would know, he would know he, what kind of woman she is, and I wouldn't let that woman touch me with a 10-foot pole. Right before Jesus' death, in Matthew, in Matthew, uh, and Mar- or Matthew and Luke both tell the story of, of another woman coming to Jesus. Mark 14, Matthew 26, coming to Jesus and anointing him at the home of Simon the leper. She anointed his head. John tells us that it's a sister of Lazarus, Mary, that anoints Jesus just days before his arrest. Anointed not by prophets and priests, by three women. And his coronation of king comes from an unlikely source as well. Jesus had been arrested, and the Roman soldiers, the ones that, that the disciples thought Jesus would be chasing back to Rome, but the ones that Jesus said that we need to love no matter what they do, those Roman soldiers fashioned a crown of thorns and jammed it on his head. They placed a purple robe on him, and they mocked him and said, Hail, King Jesus. They nailed him to a cross and hoisted it in the air and they put a sign over his head that read, Jesus, the the King of the Jews. Of course, we know that's not the end of the story. If you were here last week, you know it was Friday, but Sunday was a coming. And that's the reason we gather on Sunday mornings is because the grave couldn't hold our king, that Jesus conquered death, that the king emerged victorious. And that's why we sing with Handel's Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. He's the king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. When Handel wrote that Messiah, do you know how many hallelujahs he put in it? 167. I'll spare you, I won't sing all 167, but that's a lot of hallelujahs to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. He is the center of the universe. There is no rivals. No one is in second place. there There will not be an election. It is all about Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I had to slip in three more. The Apostle Paul said this one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, the most famous people, the biggest people on this planet, they are not the center of the universe. And one day, one great and glorious day, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that baby born in that teeny tiny little town of Bethlehem in a stable because there was no room to in the inn, born to peasant parents, born greeted only by shepherds, 
one day every single atheist will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. One day Karl Marx or Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or everyone else who has ever denied Jesus, one day will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day every sex trafficker, one day every drug dealer, one day every doubter, one day every terrorist, one day every one of us will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the meantime, my brothers and sisters, in this time between already king but not yet confessed by everyone, in this in-between time, hear me, Jesus Christ is still king. And this king moved into the neighborhood. So the big question for us on this first Sunday of Advent, what does it mean for the king to move into the neighborhood? If the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, what does it mean to have Jesus, Jesus move into the neighborhood in Flint as it is in heaven, in our neighborhood as it is in heaven? Well, here's your marching orders. If Jesus is king, and if we're part of the kingdom, and if we've been praying for God's kingdom to come on earth, his will to be done in Flint as it is in heaven, practically, what does that mean for us? You know, Jesus often spoke in parables. And he said his kingdom was, was like a little bit of leaven that, 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 that leavened the whole batch. He said his followers were, were like a little bit of salt that gives flavor and, 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 and preserves anything that it comes in contact with. He said his kingdom was like, was like a little mustard seed. It started out small, but it grew and grew and grew and grew. So what does it mean for the king to move into the neighborhood? Forget all the theological mumbo-jumbo, you know, the incarnation, atonement, resurrection, all, all, we all know all that. You've heard enough sermons about that. Let's, let's get down to the nitty-gritty on this first Sunday of Advent. What does it mean for the king to move into the neighborhood? Our marching orders are from the king in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up the cross daily and follow me. In other words, we followers of the king need to follow the king into the neighborhood. When we go into the neighborhood with our king, it means we put on the, the shoes of what those other folks are wearing. It means we share in their sufferings. It means we hear their stories. It means we come alongside them. And it means we share the love of Jesus. And we keep on sharing the love of Jesus. Why do we share the love of Jesus? Because the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Why? Because he loved the people on this dirty little ball so much that he gave his life for you and me. That's what this Advent season is about. The king of the majesty of heaven moved into our neighborhood.